This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for Resolve Dash Masterclass. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Welcome to our guest today, Julian Brigden. Thanks for joining us. Thanks um, for having me, James. Before, <laughs> before we get started, we got to say our discussion. Just for everyone remember, this is for educational, informational, and potentially entertainment purposes only. Whatever we talk about on this podcast is not advice uh, and should not be crude as such. So we hope you enjoy our conversation, but don't go out and act in markets based on what you hear today. With that said, Julian, welcome. But maybe just for those who have been hiding under a rock. Tell us a little bit about you and your firm and what you've been working on lately. Thanks very much, gents. So look, at MI2, we set MI2 up, got it. This is where you realize you're just getting really old, right? Because this is like the third career. I've been doing this now 12 years at MI2. We got set up by a few hedge funds who liked my work when I was on the sell side of the, uh, of the market. And we designed the firm to ape the kind of decision-making process that you would see within a macro fund, a, ma- a private office, a big mutual fund manager. And so we start with kind of the top-down view, and we're going to talk about some of those things now. But then I've hired this team of guys, and I think this is where it gets really frightening. I think our collective market years is pushing 200 years now, right? And that's between six of us. <laughs> It's when you get a little a little scary across all sorts of disciplines. And the reason for that is because I want to take those views on the world and try and make money. And that's really the only thing that we're interested in. And then you can subscribe to my stuff as an institutional client. You can you could do that if you wanted to reach out to support at mi2partners.com. You've got you can follow me on Twitter. So probably some people do follow me on Twitter, but it's at JulianMI2. And then, as I said to you guys, I have to put this shameless plug in because it's a beautiful place to go. It looks exactly like Richard's background in where he is now. We are having our first macro conference for MI2 in September 26th to 29th in Vail. It's the best time of the year to be out there. Your spouses will love you for taking them there. Okay. So you can go off and be complete wonk 
doing all this macro stuff and they can enjoy themselves hiking, biking, sparring, shopping. You'll hate the shopping things, expensive, but everyone will have a good time. So yeah, there you go. And uh, far away, gents, I'm open. I think it's a fantastic time in macro. I really do. Yeah, you say that. I used to say that too. And now I'm exhausted by the whole macro thing. Yeah, so when I first, in 2020, 2021, it was so exciting, amazing, but it has been just all over the map, feels anyway. And I'm glad to hear that you think it continues to be fantastic. Look, it, it's never easy, right? Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I, many days I wake up in the morning and go, could have picked an easier job than trying to front run the global financial markets and get it right. Okay. Because the markets are pretty good feeling things out. But as I said, we've been doing it 12 years and touch wood, we've been pretty good so far. But I do, the reason why I think things are interesting is we're in this sort of betwixt and between where you, if you look at the US and even across most of the world, we can see the cracks coming, right? We can see, I mean, our, we think we're heading to a recession driven by three factors. Even before the latest banking turmoil, we were tightening the credit cycle. And that's inevitable. That's how central bank tightening works. That has ramifications from capex spending to retail sales to you know, commercial real estate. We're, we're going to get an inventory cycle, a good old-fashioned kind of inventory cycle. We overstock, demand is falling, unit sales are falling. We have to adjust production. And then we think we're going to get a collapse in housing-related construction. And all three of those, it gets us to a good old-fashioned recession. We're not talking 0809, but a good old-fashioned recession. But on the other side of the equation, you've got central banks. We're not stupid. They can see that too. But it's still like holding out for dear life. No, we've got to do more. We've got to do more. And I think those two opposing forces, like two magnets, right? When you try and push the two magnets together, one side is just going to blow at some point. And when they start to move away from each other, the forces are going to be in more. And that, to me, creates market opportunity. But does it give you pause? We were talking about this earlier. The fact that because of the SVB event and the banking crisis that ensued, essentially the Fed not only thought about, didn't go through with, but thought about pausing the, uh, the right cycle, hike, that particular meeting in March, but they reversed essentially what was five or six months of QT in a, in one fell swoop. I haven't looked at the data more recently, but they were spooked. Come down here, but you're right, Richard, it's still. Equity markets didn't really, the moves in race were enormous, but equity markets didn't quite reflect that. How do, how do you feel about that, that event? And what does that do to your thesis given their potential propensity to expand balance sheet again? Right. Look, we've been living in this bizarre world, right? For a while, since 08, 09, where we track the macro to figure out the policy because the policy drives markets. Right? You can wrap, and I frequently look, I'm a macro guy, so I hate equity people. They're too bloody chipper. They're, the glass is always half full. And I, I you know. Preach, Julian, preach. Agreed. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that wall of worry everybody else has. Yeah. But, and I, equity analysts, I think just, ambulance chases, right? And I mean that in the sense that literally they just write a rhetoric that fits a price action. 
I, and I look, I deal with a lot of very experienced journalists and have long conversations with these guys that I really admire and been in the markets. But frequently you get a phone call from some young kid at some magazine or TV station or website and they ask you, so why did the market go up today? And I'm like, why do you even want to write about it? Or don't you want to write about what happens tomorrow, today? Isn't that the whole idea? And so I look at all these markets, and to your point, they're being driven by liquidity, and we are fitting a narrative around it to suit the price action. And so it's not got anything really to do with fundamentals. Asset prices, certainly equities, level of the indexes, let's put it like that, is driven by liquidity provision. What happens underneath, I think in fairness, Richard, even though you say like the market's quite high up, if you actually look underneath, quite a recessionary kind of price action that we see, right? We've gone back to this price action that we saw during the COVID, where the fangs have essentially, we call them during COVID, we call them a Zacks bond. So a replacement for a bond, where essentially an asset that goes up when there is no real economic growth. And that's what's happened. So it's those same stocks that because of their weighting in the index are underpinning the index, but look below the surface and it's pretty shitty, right? Yeah, market breadth is pretty low. You, you're alluding to this reflexive nature of the passive drive and, and, and how the mega caps have become systemically more important. Yes and no. There's a logic to it, right? These companies do seem to have an ability to a point to continue to grow reasonable levels of revenue. But yes, look, Apple... If you, if it wasn't so big and it didn't have so much momentum and it wasn't buying back so much stock, it's a pretty uh, company when you look at its revenue growth and its product innovation, right? I mean, this is really, they haven't done anything. They were supposed to take over Research Apple TV. They haven't really moved into the automation space and the home space. Where is all this? Where's the car? All of this shit. They just sell us bloody phones and services to go in it. And it's only old gits like me that still buy an Apple phone because I can't be bothered to move to an Android, which is arguably a better phone that younger kids use. All of these sorts of things. It's not a very innovative company. It's a big, stodgy, semi-utility. And a lot of money in it. And that's what, and there's a lot of money in the world at the moment still. No, I totally agree. And big tech is now most likely in the crosshairs of regulators on both sides of the Atlantic. We know that. We also know that they're starting to block some of these acquisitions, right? Activision acquisition right. by Microsoft was blocked. So there's an argument to be made that top line growth will moderate and be, and they'll transition from being growth stocks to being cash cows, right? They right. are generating quite and a I, bit of Look, I think flow. the biggest issue facing the US equity market is the very fact that it's just outperformed to the degree that it has, right? I, if I think there is a variable this year, it has an awful lot to do with the dollar, and it has an awful lot to do with this reflexive inflow of funds that we've had over the last decade, which has driven, I mean, from reflexive in the, what Soros says about reflexivity. So in other words, the purchase of the underpins, the fundamentals that underpin the price of that asset. So the more you buy, the more the fundamentals improve, the more you buy, et cetera, et cetera. So... I think that we've been in a decade plus of that in the US. And the biggest thing that I think where the opportunity lies is if that starts to change this year, 
It doesn't mean the US market goes down necessarily. It just may be that there are better things to buy rather than this. Let me buy some Apple. Let me buy some Microsoft. Let me buy some Google. Let me hold dollars. That's the point. Though. Else. It's less of it's less of an equity US equity market story, more about a currency story, which I think Correct. is really the big story of the moment right now. I think that we potentially. The, potentially. We haven't done it yet, Richard, but the if you look at the way things are falling into place, I think that's where the big surprise could come. So I just want to press pause because I we could go a long way down this rabbit hole without addressing what I think is the elephant in the room, which is that Microsoft and Apple are within 5% of all-time highs. Yeah, And I have to tell you, we all internally have been lamenting this concentrated, growth-oriented, hyper-cap uh, tech, sustained tech rally for years because it sucks all the oxygen out of every other dimension of the market. And it makes... Any attempt at diversification look idiotic, right? So I've been hoping for a shift in regime. I thought we were going to, we were coming to that in 2022. I thought that was going to break the back of big tech because it was going to, it was going to cause a shift away from duration oriented assets and towards short duration assets. We've seen short duration assets get a big, a bid look at cash, look at the inverse of the yield curve, et cetera, in rates. But it seems to me like I was, I thought that, that the big tech growth, concentrated growth oriented equity rally was duration, was a duration proxy bet for years. It was. And that is, I think being called into question is all I'm saying. No, look, you're right. It's a bit soul destroying especially for a macro guy, right? So you've got this natural proclivity to want just to sell it, even though my models are telling me to be long US stocks at the moment. The question is, and I do think you did get an adjustment in some element of the duration market, right? The infinite duration market, right? The Kathy Wood right. shit. Let's call it what it is, right? Yep. The Kathy Wood shit. This one track pony that she is, right? She's just who I think has done more singularly to destroy shareholder value. And yet you have this groupie following of people who believe that she is going to be right. She's wrong. And she's been proved to be wrong. And that's why you've lost 70% of your money. The, that side of the marketplace did go down. So the infinite duration stuff has gone down. I don't know whether these half a dozen stocks, you can really call them duration anymore. I don't know whether you can really call Apple a growth stock anymore. I call it, as I said, it's a cash-generating utility. So, it's in the midst of a transition, without a doubt. Big tech yes. is transitioning. Yeah. yeah, and I think in fairness, what I would say about 2022 was it. you were right. It looked like this stuff was going. And I would put that down to a certain extent because it looked like the dollar was topping. And then we get Ukraine. And that, that last ounce of global liquidity that wasn't concentrated here came in. And now I think the fundamental problem facing US markets and US stocks is all the world's money is here in dollars. So in other words, un-FX hedged, hanging out 
in US stocks, certain corners of the bond market. And could that continue? Yeah, maybe. But it, I think the cracks are beginning to show, right? We've got a US equities have been underperforming Europe in this last little run up in tech. Fine. Okay. But they've actually been, if you're a European investor, since the end of last year, you'd have been better off having your money in Euro stocks in Euros rather than S&P or NASDAQ in dollars. And that's important, right? Because it's a big element. The second element that's related to that is the reason why the money is here. The money is here as simply a balancing item to fund an enormous current account deficit because as the reserve currency, we have a natural proclivity to have to run a current account deficit. That's how we get dollars into the rest of the world. Okay, We either lend them or we spend them, right? And foreigners give us money on in return. So they either lend us the money or they buy US assets. They haven't lent us the money really because they've lent certain pockets of the market money, but they haven't. US banks on borrowing a lot of euros overseas and then turning those into dollars to lend to US consumers to go and buy BMWs, right? What Germans have done and Japanese have done and Brits have done is they bought US assets. And so the money is here. The problem with that is that relationship, as I said, is reflexive because when it starts, if you look at the outperformance of US equity markets, really starts powering in 2011 and then again in 2014 as the dollar starts to, when the dollar really takes a kicker in 2014, right? And the way that it works is, and we saw this in Japan going into the Nikkei bubble, we saw this in Australia in 2009 to 2011. So your currency starts to rise. So foreigners look around and they go, oh, look, dollar's rising up. Let me have some of that. So they start to put money into dollars. And what do they put the money in? They put it into stocks, so US stocks outperform. They put it into US corporate debt. US corporates take that money and they buy back stocks, so US stocks perform even more, or I'll buy even more US stocks. The resultant effect of that is a booming wealth effect, which does two things. Firstly, it causes the Fed to raise rates, okay? Or the dollar outperforms even more. Let me own even more. And secondly, it funds a booming economy which fund, which requires or drives, sorry, a large current account deficit, which foreigners then have to fund. So it literally becomes self-reinforcing. But the problem is it's almost definitionally an unstable, stable equilibrium because it depends on the three metrics which you discussed already. The first one is US asset outperformance, because if US assets stop outperforming, the money goes home. The secondly, a strong dollar. Right, because I've lent you that money as a foreign. I've lent the US the money unhedged because I can't fund a current account deficit with hedged inflows. Okay. So the dollar has to keep outperforming because if that drops too much, like I said, you'd be better off as a European having your money back home. So the money goes home. And the third thing it depends on is the maintenance of that very large current account deficit. Because if we go into a recession and the current account deficit shrinks, the U.S. doesn't need foreign money anymore, and the money and U.S. suit returns adjust, so the money goes home. And I think we're starting to see changes in that 
self-reinforcing amorphous kind of ball of interaction that those three variables create and we're starting to see leakage. Does it stop? Maybe. But I think there's a vulnerability there. And that's to me is what will determine really going forward where I put my assets. Because I don't, if you put a gun to my head, I really don't think the next decade looks like the last decade. And in the last decade, literally as a European, if you'd have put your money into the IBEX, the Spanish equity market, you were up 18% since the lows of 09. Fucking idiot. Like you should just if put you it in anywhere I, except for the for US equity markets, you're flat right. over the last, what is it, 13 years? In real terms, for sure. In real terms. But I'd love to unpack the, those variables that you're alluding to, Julia, and maybe start with the last one, right? This idea of deficit spending in the US maybe being curbed. Do you see anything affected? Look, I said, I think we're going into recession. In a recession, typically consumer spending contracts, given that a large part of the deficit is consumer durables and consumer-related items. Yeah, I think, I think that's falling. And I think that we started to see signs of the current account deficit peak. <laughs> and I think it's coming down. And I think that will adjust the relative relative yield of either the on in the bond market. And remember, Europe and Japan are having to spend an inordinate amount of money, which they haven't done up until now. There was a Bloomberg article a couple of months ago that said Germans are earmarked or think that they need to spend 250 billion euros to hit their climate change objectives, I think, by 2030. No, the number is a trillion. They've got to boost defense spending hundreds of billions of euros. The Japanese are doing the same. They're re-onshoring, right? All of these things. Where does the money come from? It has to come from relatively higher yields in Europe or Japan to attract the money home from where it is at the moment. Where is it? Here. And as I said, the second thing is what happens to growth if we go into the recession? Current account deficit will drop and the money is just going to go home. And if the dollar starts to fall and that outperformance of the US equity market, and we call this, I thought it was quite a clever title. I'll pat myself on the map, but I called it a biblical, a rotation of biblical proportions when I looked at the sectors in the US equity market. Why did I call it a rotation of biblical proportions? Because it's big. But also because of that expression in the Bible, the last become first and the first become last. And if you look at the sectors that tend to perform in a dollar up environment in the US versus those sectors which tend to perform in a dollar down environment, they're exactly the opposite. So when the dollar fell from 2002 to 2008, and it, please guys, I am not in the tinfoil wearing Machiavellian the dollar's over. It's not going to be a reserve currency. Who in there? The right yuan is not taking over. We know exactly. the yuan. It's physically impossible for them to take over at this point. They don't run a current account deficit. What logical Westerner is going to want to put their money or is going to be allowed to put their money in a totalitarian state? None, right? And more important, None. how do you get out? 
I, yeah, I mean, maybe they let it in, but how, how do you get it out? Is, no, we're just exactly talking about a trade and maybe a cyclical reality for the U.S. dollar. It's the Hotel California currency trade, dude. Yeah, That's exactly. Right. So what we're talking about is 2008, <laughs> potentially repeat. So if you look at the relative performance of the sectors, the worst performers, tech, consumer discretionary, healthcare. The best performers, mining, metals, energy, transport. Everything that everyone is short or underweight versus everything that everyone is balls to the wall, max overweight. So Julian, I'm literally praying for that <laughs> environment. Like I cannot wait to see that happen. So like you're hitting all my buttons here. But the, when I think about that, regime happening back then yes. it was an inflationary growth environment that was led yep. by china growth pulling all these asset classes up all these commodity prices up well, as they 2000 were. not 2002 right because this is 2002 2008 mm -hmm. so not post the gfc way before the gfc and actually what caused it back then was the end of the dot-com bubble yeah in a similar, I think, dynamic to here, because to me, there's no question that on a relative basis, relative, the US equity market is a bubble versus the rest of the world, okay? the It was just that the money leaving, and actually there's a dollar, and then the Fed starting to cut, and the dollar rose into the recession. <laughs> so the, so the dot-com bubble bursts, okay, in March of 2000, and the dollar keeps moving up. Now, the dot-com bubble back then as a market was an amoeba compared to the behemoth, just because it had Microsoft in doesn't mean that the NASDAQ back then really mattered. The NASDAQ was down 40% and the Fed raised rates 50 basis points because the NASDAQ was like, oh, what was that on my shoe? Oh, sorry. No one cared. It was like Kathy Wood's art was this. Yeah, it was a growth right. index. Yeah, it was. It was tiny. But what happened was the US equity market we rolled from the NASDAQ to the S&P. The S&P peaks in September of 2000, six months after the NASDAQ. And then that peaks, and then the money rolls into the Dow, which is the big market. And the Dow doesn't peak until May of 2001. And the dollar is rising this whole time because the Fed's being tough. They're keeping to raise rates. The money's coming into the US, relative outperformance, et cetera, et cetera. And then the Fed starts to cut as we move into the recession. And as that happens, that's when the dollar starts to go. It acts as a natural issue. As the dollar falls, it tends to be reflationary for the rest of the world. And that's what started that cycle. And 2002, 2008 was not a bad time to be in the US. It was quite a good time to be in the US, right? It wasn't the worst. It was just a shitty time to be invested in US assets. And it was bloody expensive as a US citizen to go on holiday in Europe. That's why I keep telling all my mates, Go and buy your Go FX now. for your next five years worth of holidays now. Yeah, the BRICs were massive during that, like Brazil, Russia, India, China. And that's at the end, the end of it, end of they that. were kind of yeah. the place to be. It's when a beer was costing you like, back in 2008, like five bucks in Manhattan and 15 in Rio. Yeah, so there was an improvement in the terms of trade of everybody else against the U.S. Because Correct. The US so are we, seeing a, are we seeing a counter trend move here then, Julian, with tech? Moving back to all-time highs, I think so because, moving lower. I think because we've, to Richard's point, I think because we had that reversal of the QT, 
because we have the liquidity coming to the system. It really hasn't done an awful lot to bolster the European versus US trade. It hasn't really moved at all. I'm long IBEX, the Spanish market, against the NASDAQ. And well, against the S&P, and it hasn't really moved at all. So it's not like the US is outperforming. It's just hanging in there because they pump more cash into the system. So just to go back to that 2002 to 2008 period, you're saying it's simply that the dollar move is what causes then the reflexive nature of international stocks outperforming. And commodities were also a, probably the best performing asset Started class in that, in that Yes, set, absolutely. Right? So what caused the commodity outperformance at the, then? The dollar, primarily. And as the dollar starts to fall, it is reflationary for the rest of the world. It is uh, the grease, the oil, the cogs of the global machinery, right? So if you start to drop the value of the dollar, then the value of a hard set should, and it's the denominator of that asset, that the value of that asset should rise. In euro terms, copper should be maybe flat, you could argue, right? But in dollar terms, if the dollar is falling and the euro is rising, then in dollar terms, Copper should be going up, right? It's a little bit of money illusion, but at some point, to Rich's point, it does actually become a real thing because you do get investment in the commodity space and that drives stronger economies in Australia yeah. and Canada. I'm Peruvian. Uh, Brazil, and I saw you know, that period was amazing for Peru. It really yes. brought poverty yes. down quite aggressively. There was just so much work yes. to be had on the commodity yeah. side. So it does I, have I think, a real economic impact. It does have a real impact. And I think, look, I, I, I attended this dinner the other week with Jeff Curry, the Goldman commodity analyst. Yeah. And I like Jeff. It was interesting. We joked at the end of the dinner with two brothers from, a, from different mothers, right? And his view is what causes, and I totally agree with him, is what causes periods of commodity outperformance is a period of hyper-financialization where you extend to, to your point, Adam, into these like super duration financial assets. So what you do is you neglect the real economy investment and you go and invest in art. And you pump art to stupid levels because just there's nothing else that you can buy, right? So you just take the biggest ballsy risks in the biggest shit out there, right? But in the process of doing that, you're funnel you're taking money away from the rest of the real economy. And what comes back to bite you is that you need those real economic products. So as growth starts to pick up, as the Fed cuts rates and the excitement starts to turn around, you go, oh shit, I haven't got enough of those products. It's just a timing thing. And I think, Rodrigo, to your point, a lot depends on the dollar. A dollar hasn't broken yet at all in broad terms it still looks pretty strong it's still sitting i'm looking at a chart here where i like to look at the broad trade range and indexes because then it cuts out some of the noise of is it a euro move is it a yen move and all that something sort of no i'm just looking at the purest version i can of the dollar and we're sitting just above the 2001 2002 highs okay and we're holding there this is where we bounce back in at the beginning of the year. This is where it accelerated through it, through COVID. It's just, could it change? And how does it change? It changes if the Fed's got it wrong 
And this is going to be a much quicker move into a recession than they realize. Because for all their huff and their puff, we know they are going to be, if something's wrong, and this is a systemic banking crisis, they are going to be cutting rates much quicker than they think. And when they do, the US banks, and I was having this conversation with a buddy of mine, he's an extremely good banking analyst. The US banks are in a much shittier situation than the European. Much, much shittier situation. Right. Much because of more- negative rates for and- a while, Europe was actually caught in a, the European banking industry was caught in negative rates. And that period really hurt them in a way that it didn't hurt the US well, banks. Other- the economy in the US was a lot more robust than the anemic growth that you saw in Europe. Yes, that's true. But there's also some other things. Following the solving crisis in Europe, the Europeans took some steps, for example, around hold to maturity and mark to market of assets, which the US didn't. So pretty much all assets are mark to market in Europe and not held to maturity, even sovereign debt. The second thing is a very large proportion of the assets in European banks are actually made up by mortgages. And mortgages don't default typically, right? That's not the case in the US banking system because US banks take those mortgages and then they sell them to Fannie and Freddie. So what you left within US banks, particularly the smaller regional banks, all the big boys, is much more economically sensitive shit, like commercial real estate, commercial and industrial loans, auto loans, personal loans, right? All of that sort of stuff. So the US banking system outside the big boys is much more cyclically sensitive than the European ones, which is, once again, highly concentrated in the big bank because we don't have... The US has got this... I keep joking whenever I go to other parts of the developed world that, and I come back to the US and I land at an airport. I'm, this is a third world masquerading as the first world when it comes to public transport. That's our banking system. Yeah, that, that's, that's very interesting. So it is... It, I want to pull on the thread that you dropped about commercial properties. Sorry, Rod, because... That, that, whether we pull on that thread now or we put a pin on it, and because that is now starting to emerge as one of the major issues that these banks are going to emerge. Look, I was looking at something. If you look at CNI loans, right? So commercial industrial loans, the funding to industry. It's a huge part of US banks' books. Looks to me like the loss ratio is running incredibly low. But when I look at where it's going to double and triple, Right now, the problem is these guys don't have the assets to what we've seen so far in the banking system is equivalent to the duration bond losses we've seen in credit. Right, so credit. If you look at credit, credit debt, you have two types of hits that you can take on it. It's a bond, so it can take a hit when interest rates rise. Right, that's your duration hit. The longer the debt that you own the bigger the hit, right? But it also, unlike a sovereign bond, really, theoretically, won't go there, but theoretically, it also has a credit exposure because you're lending to a company or a basket of underlying assets that you're, that you're lending on, right? And so as the economy goes into recession, those start taking hits too. And when you look at credit pricing, I think all it's done is adjust for the duration here. I don't think it's taken any... When I look at high-yield debt, my models tell me high-yield debt, which is like nine and nine and change at the moment, 
should be 17 or 18, right? Yields, right? And it's going to come because you're going to take losses in those portfolios. That's the same as the banks. The banks, you've taken that kind of duration hit, Fed's raised rates, they've lost deposits, they've taken a hit on their holdings because they'd extended too far, but they haven't taken the actual physical losses on the assets that is going to occur when people lose their jobs, when companies are going to go bankrupt. And that's coming through recession. You've got leveraged loan indices at or near record tights. You've got corporate bonds, spreads at or near record tights right down the credit curve. You've got employment prints coming in, moving the, the unemployment rate down. What was it? From 3.6 oh. to 3.4 or 3.7 to 3.4, something like that. You've got average hourly earnings up considerably more than expected. You've got hours work up considerably more than expected. It just doesn't, I hear you, like you make big money on, on, on contrarian calls, but where are we seeing confirmation? Okay. These themes? So you're oh. seeing it in, you're seeing it in the credit metrics. You're, um, even before SVB, you were seeing it in the credit metrics, right? The way, remember how banks make money. They essentially are glorified hedge fund, right? They borrow a bunch of money short term and they leverage the shit out of it, 10, 10 to one, basically. And they also do. They transform in time transformation. You borrow short, you lend long, all that sort of stuff, right? Yep. So yep. when the curve, when the central banks start to raise rates and the curve flattens, right? So normally a curve looks like this. It's short-term rates, this is long-term rates. So when the curve starts to do this and those short-term rates rise, the funding opportunities or the opportunities the banks deteriorate, right? So their natural proclivity then is to tighten. And so you were seeing that even... Before we got to SVB, SVB, we don't have all the data, but the anecdotal data and some of the data that we've seen looks like it's quite materially accelerated things. And I think going forward, it will, because I don't see a solution for these regional banks, right? These regional banks will have to either, best case, their balance sheets don't grow. That means no growth in lending. That's bad. Worst case, their bank balance sheets in aggregate will continue to contract. And that's really fucking bad because the big boys aren't going to step up to fill the gap. Okay. They have no interest. Okay. They're just saving their balance sheets so they can pick up super cheap assets as those regional banks disgorge them. So JP Morgan has got no greater proclivity to give you a mortgage than your local bank has at the moment. And that's not great. No doubt that the Fed was spooked by SDB, which is the, their action on the balance sheet just tells you that, right? So, and they so, should be fucking spooked because there's serious implications for this, right? In longer term as to their ability to drive inflation out of the system. But that, that aside. So you're seeing it in the credit side. You're seeing it in manufacturing. We have shitty ISM and PMI numbers, right? If you look at the Philly Fed survey that goes back to the 1960s, I think we have never, never printed this number. Without a recession, never. But we've also never had manufacturing as such a small sliver Correct. of the economy. Correct. But who is the client base of manufacturing? The client base of manufacturing is services. And so what manufacturing is adjusting to is the fact that services 
and their clients have massively overordered. Now, so this is so what will happen then? This is the point. If you look at it gets a little bit complicated, but look, companies work off nominal levels of activity. So actual level multiplied by the price, right? So their profits are a function of how many things they sell times how much they charge for it. But when you look at the real economy, you look at the firm's actual production, it's got nothing to do with what they sell it for. It's simply how many they produce. So that's a real. So financial assets are nominal. The real economy is literally a real unit-based beast, right? How many widgets did I make? How many people do I need to employ to make those widgets? So if you look at the equity market, it's doing well. And you saw it again with Procter & Gamble and Coca-Cola. Their revenues were up. The reason why their revenues up was their prices were up more than their revenues, which means their units of production are down. And the reason why that is happening is because consumers can no longer afford it. And if you looked at the adjustment actually in consumer real incomes, the US corporate sector has done an amazingly good job at sticking their hands in people's pockets and taking every red cent of the stimulus and the wage increase to the point that the rate of change in people's real income has not collapsed this fast in 60 years. So it's not surprising that those that they can't buy the same units that they did. And while it works in singularity that Procter & Gamble increase prices and take an adjustment down on production, you push that across the whole economy, and all of a sudden your industrial production is down 3%. The number of people you employ is down 3%. And the problem with that is, once someone loses their job, someone else inevitably loses their job. Because unemployment is literally a momentum game. And where you actually see, Adam, the deterioration, some of these metrics, is in the rate of change. So the second derivative employment is deteriorating, right? So you look at initial claims. The rate of change in initial claims is beginning to rise quite materially. In fact, it's above a level where if you go back 60 years, we're either in the recession now or we're one quarter away for the official announcement of the recession. Right? So to me, there is absolutely no doubt we are going into recession. I think it's a common or garden recession, but you've got to understand what that means. The average rise in a post-war recession of unemployment is 3.3%. So that means we're heading to 65 to 7%. If you go to six and a half to seven percent, then your credit card losses are going to triple from where they are now. Your auto loan losses are going to rise. Your CNI loan losses are going to rise, and this is already a banking sector that's fucking stressed. So none of this gets better. It's just a stay of execution. Fine, they could ban short selling on Monday. Does absolutely nothing but fuck a few shorts. So. Can I just dig? Okay, so let's just talk about the markets and what the effect of what you just described has on them. So at some time in the future, there's going to be a recession. That recession is going to cause equity markets to possibly go down, right? One assumes. Depends on the liquidity provision, Rodrigo, right? So it really does depend on the liquidity because if the Fed, if there's a banking run and the Fed actually boosts liquidity, look, in COVID, and this is the thing, I wrote in, March of 
2020, I said, ignore the fundamentals, go with the liquidity. Because we've been doing that for over a decade prior to that point. You did it in the Weimar Republic, in the collapse in pre-Nazi Germany. The equity market was going up as the economy was imploding because they were printing so much money. And at the end of the day, an equity view, equity is a tangible asset. Right? It's a claim on a stake in a company, right? The equity market becomes harder. Oh, you want to run a relative game. So you're short, long this one stock and short something else, right? Okay. So let's move on from equity. Yeah. A recession it causes a US dollar probably to soften, which causes commodity prices to go up. Yes. Which causes possibly global equity markets to be relatively a rotation in global equity markets versus yes. US market. Yes. Yes. And so, so one of the things, okay, so that's what I was getting stuck on. Sorry, Julian, I just yeah. went, because this is something I've been thinking about for, for a half yeah. hour. When we talk about the US dollar, generally when there is a panic market, you have a blow off rally in oh. the dollar. Correct. And then you have this kind of 2002 to 2007. Correct. And so that blow off rally might not happen if depending on the liquidity provisions that the U.S. government puts on U.S. I think it happened during, in COVID. It happened already. already, I think it's already happened. As I said, I think the money is here. I think the risk is now, as I said, I've got a buy signal on U.S. equities, which to say I've struggled with, and it's a momentum thing, is the understatement of the day. And I've chosen to be long other things, right, as opposed to U.S. equities. But you could have a situation where we slip into a recession. Now, in theory, the dollar... U.S. equity market should come down, right? I only said what I said because I just don't know how the nature of this recession has come about. Is the Fed going to have to step up, provide yet more liquidity, right, to save, save problems in the U.S. banking system? And in that situation, you don't want to be short the indexes, right? Certainly not probably the NASDAQ, right, and the facts, right? But you want to be probably short cyclicals and you want to be short the banks still and et cetera, et cetera. And broadly, you might want to be short U.S. stocks because probably the dollar's going down. So it really does depend on the nature in which you get there. But broadly speaking, the U.S. equity market should underperform in a recession, right? It should. But I just Especially don't the know cap weighted indices. see variable. That's the one that's the top one to call. So the cap weighted indices, because they are dominated by the mega caps, which in the bizarro reversal world that we're talking about would likely tend to suffer. But I love the way you're framing this, Julian, because... This is an idea that I've been playing around in the last few weeks as, as the month is over and writing commentary. And so you could argue that next to crude, the price of money, right? The yield on treasuries, particularly the 10 year, are the two most important variables in the economy. Right. And the only thing that's more important than their price levels is perhaps their rate of change. Yes. And the only thing that would trump that would be the direction. So yeah. right now we have these structural forces, you know, call it for turning esque like the, the, this kind of inflection in, in, in yep. this longer cycle that we might be in. There are some yep. cyclical forces. And to your point, like the Fed has this direction that it's going with it's trying, trying to talk tough. And Lorena Meister comes out and says, we need to keep a real Fed fund rates positive for the foreseeable future in order yep. to quench inflation. And then Powell, thinking he's speaking to Vladimir Zelensky on the phone, tells the hoaxers that he sees equal chances of either missing a recession by a whisker or a mild recession, but that we have to talk about a political blunder. We have to quench the real wages and we have to rise raise unemployment because this is the way to- Look, you know, I hate to say it because it 
she, I find her really nauseating, not because of her politics per se, but her delivery and her just because she is a politician. But Elizabeth Warren was the whole, we've been say, writing to our clients, I'm a deep central bank city, but the whole SCP, so the central forecast of the Fed, were just an example of kabuki, politically driven theatre. There was nothing in those SEPs that made any logical sense if you put it through a historical test. So the Fed said, we're going to have a, inflation's going to melt away, fine. We're going to rise, on unemployment's going to rise 1%, basically 1.1, and then it's going to track sideways for three years, and it's all going to happen as the economy slows, but only just to the point close to a recession, but not a recession. Never, ever happened in the post-war period because you've never had more than a, this is Psalm's rule, but we've refined it a little bit. It's quicker. It's a quicker indicator, but once unemployment rides 0.6, you're in a recession. So a 1% rise that they forecast, you'd not have a soft landing. You would have a recession of some magnitude. Secondly, Unemployment looks like a mount, the mountain range in the background of your picture. So in other words, sharp peaks, goes up, comes down quickly, and then rounded valleys, right? rounded valleys, where it starts to lose momentum, and then that momentum flips the other way, and then it hits a tipping point, and all of a sudden it starts to rise material. And so this idea that we were going to have this sort of stunted little hill that went now never happened right never happened so this was all just designed to give them political cover because they know the only way that you break the back of inflation which at the end of the day is a function of excessive nominal growth is to break the back of the thing that drives nominal growth and what drives nominal growth is the labor market. It's how many people are working, how many hours they are working, and how much they are earning per hour. Tough shit to drive up the unemployment number. You're not going to find any detractors here when it comes to cynicism on central banks. I've even said on this podcast before that it's at least two-thirds theatrics or someone has put those numbers around it. There's definitely a lot of Boisterous rhetoric, and it's all about really unleashing animal spirits without a doubt. But the problem is, all of a sudden, this tightening and this hawkishness can change on a whim if you see real fiscal liquidity concerns from a, a banking run. So, Correct. my question, coming back to the whole uh, structural, right, that the cyclical forces and the structural forces, how do you make sense of those? Because they do seem to be pulling in opposite directions. And it, it seems like the marginal dollar of allocation is confused. It doesn't know where to go because it's hard to establish level of money in the economy right now. So I think, look, I mean, there's something, look, if you look at the bond market, it's certainly assuming a pretty rapid recession. Is it assuming a rapid enough downturn? Not necessarily, right? It could, the bond market could get, you You have had situations when you get a credit crunch. We wrote a piece about an anatomy of credit crunch. We sent it to clients a couple of weeks ago, and we'd written a piece on the credit freeze the week before SVB. Hey, better to be lucky than smart, right? Better to be lucky than smart. <laughs> and crunches, when they hit, happen really quickly. Like that, that's the lesson. 
that things can fall apart much, much, much quicker than you think. And I think that's the big thing. So it's this, because if this credit crunch doesn't happen, I can tell you the bond market is mispriced. The Fed is not going to cut rates because I think what people don't understand, and none of this, none of the dollar stuff is going to happen. Nothing's going to, the dollar will remain big and they will be hiking rates in next year again. And it's not my bet. Okay. It's not what my models are showing me. It's not my work is showing me. And because I'm a natural cynic when it comes to central banks, I have a friend who worked at the Fed, was chief Senate economist, is still in the markets in his late 70s now. And he said, I've followed the, ma- the Fed man and boy for 45 years, It'll be longer than 45 years now, I suspect. And he said, they're always most bullish at the top and they never catch a turn. And I believe him. I believe him. So it's not my bet, but I think what people don't understand is the policy that the Fed is pursuing. So I talked a lot about to my clients starting really in the end of Q3 of last year about the whole concept of higher for longer. And people hadn't really got it. They didn't really understand it. The Fed hadn't really started to use that language. And it came about because I still have lots of friends in the policy space from my days when I worked at Medley Advisors. And I was having a long discussion with that sort of diaspora that I know. And there are two ways that you tackle inflation. When it felt this magnitude, option number one is called deliberate disinflation. This is the Volcker type role where you deliberately drive the economy into deflation, right? You kill the economy. You don't care about the consequences, stab it through the heart. It's dead. Okay. Now, option number two is called opportunistic disinflation where you move rates to a restrictive level, you don't stab the guy through the heart. You stab him away from a vital org. You home. Okay? Now, that's still unpleasant, right? And there's a chance that you could bleed out. But the hope is that just that pain leaves you on the ground long enough struggling there's something that some nice Samaritan will come along and take the knife out and you'll be fine and clean you up and you'll eventually get. But what people didn't understand was that's what Greenspan did in the 90s. And I was saying this to clients, he left rates unchanged for, remember in Q3 of last year, we were still pricing like rate cuts really quickly. We were going to do the up and then straight down. Greenspan left rates unchanged basically for four years. And that was to grind CPI out by 200 basis points. So this concept that we were just going to, because we haven't killed the economy necessarily, we might have discovered that we've killed it, but that's a whole different issue, right? But the Fed, when you look at that framework and you look at what the Fed said, everything that Powell said this week makes total sense. Because what he said was, we've hit restrictive, in our policy framework, that means we just go on hold. We don't cut rates because we didn't kill the economy. And so because we didn't kill the economy, we're waiting to see that weakness. In fact, we're going to embrace that weakness. It's what we intend to see. Now, if the weakness doesn't happen, we're raising rates again. And so essentially at this point, 
as far as we're concerned, our policy framework is utterly asymmetric. Strength, rates go up. Weakness. What, what was that? I didn't hear anything. And the, the market has never believed this because they still believe that the central banks are their friend. They're not your friend now. And this is what I've been saying to people for a year and a half, two years. There you are. As soon as inflation comes into the system, they're your arch nemesis. Now, do you end up having to be your friend because something else is broke, breaks? Maybe. But I suspect if something else breaks, that revival of friendship comes from real intense pain first. Is there any scenario where they keep rate unchanged but are forced back into some kind of, whether it's through the repo markets or through re-engaging with the Kiwi instrument, keep rates unchanged but are forced to provide more liquidity? And what, what does that do for the effective interest, interest rate so in the I economy? Think you're talking about a situation where I could envision two things. The first, the obvious one and the prescient one would be a situation where you continue to get problems in the regional banks and somehow they have Which to you extend. probably will. Yeah, and you have to extend this facility to other things and more liquidity provision. And they, it's like the sort of classic way that separation of church and state, right? Which was always the way that modern democracies basically set up. And they have this sort of separation principle. Oh, rates are different from liquidity. Ah, no, they're not really, right? No, they're not really. Bank markets are so proficient that they've learned how to use liquidity insanely well, right? So you give us liquidity, we're going to run this damn thing off, right? And you, the real economy may be deteriorating, but just so care, right? We, I say, the, the Fed has created the crack addict for whom they become beholden. And the only thing the crack addict cares about is how much crack he's getting. He doesn't care about the price of the crack, right? Literally equity markets now have gone negative correlation to bond yields. They go up when bond yields go up. If bond yields go up, when you tend to have liquidity provision, and that's all they care about. They've totally broken the correlations, right? They have good luck ever getting out of this thing, right? So the second scenario where you could have liquidity provision, and this is a scarier one, and I don't think it's an issue right here, right now. But fast forward to 2024 or 2025. 24 going into election, 25 with a new president. And let's say... We're right. And we actually have a pretty nasty recession. And this thing is dragging on. And we have high debt levels. And government decides they're going to spend again. Right? Because we all know that fiscal profligacy is now the the MO of politicians. Right? And or we're you remember we're fighting three wars, Jets, and they're really expensive. Climate change, kinetic war with Russia. Cold War with China, right? And we have to massively ramp up defense spending or massively ramp up climate change-related spending, right? And the long end of the bond market goes, it, inflation's come back down, but the economy's recovering and inflation picks up really quickly. This is the lesson of the 60s and 70s, right? We had big cycles. It just never went back inside the box. It always was higher loads, those inflationary cycles. And the bond market goes, I'm out of here in the long end. Right, it starts to sell off because it can smell there's more spending coming. We haven't truly wrung inflation out of the system for whatever reason, right? And you start to challenge the solvency 
of the sovereign again. And ultimately, the job of a central bank, good mate Mike Taylor always says this, is the sovereignty of the sovereign. And do you get a situation where the Fed has to do QE again to buy treasuries? Let's go there, debt ceiling. Essentially, this is what we're... Is this debt ceiling altercation at this moment in Congress, is this any different than the previous ones? Because I would say in terms of the intransigence that you've got within D.C., and the logjam that you've got within D.C., and there is a scenario that I've heard discussed that was contemplated by Obama, and they refused to do it, and that is a situation where you could get up to the debt ceiling, and then you could declare the debt ceiling essentially null and void. And what you argue is that the, use the 14th Amendment, and you argue that in the passage of the preceding legislation, so for example, the Inflation Reduction Act, there is an implicit spending bill attached to that. And so essentially, you voted for that piece of legislation. So you can't then impose some retroactively, some old piece of legislation, i.e. the debt ceiling. So the debt ceiling's not anymore. Now, they would go to the Supreme Court. We'd see how that one would pan out. But it's possible that bonds that were being issued to continue that new spending could themselves be declared invalid. So what yield would those come with? On the hierarchy of fanciful ideas, is this more fanciful than the trillion-dollar platinum coin? Like, uh, yeah, I, I don't yes. know how to... Yes. Because this one was contemplated. Oh, so the platinum coins are more fanciful. That's no, I more... think it's more fanciful the platinum coin, yes. Yeah, okay. okay. So this is actually being considered by corners of government. It has been considered. It is the way that, look, it's a, really, look, understand, guys, there's only one game in DC, right? And it isn't about running the economy and doing the best for the American people. It's getting yourself reelected. Right? Election cycles, yeah. It's just getting, and unfortunately, we have this two years election cycle in the US, basically, because we have midterm. It's catastrophic, right? It's just catastrophic, right? And so the way that it's contemplated is so we're in the summer, things are getting bad. Unemployment's drop, employment's drop, you know, the economy's starting to weaken, you're starting to, the equity markets maybe start to come down. People are beginning to get a little concerned. Then they get concerned that they're not going to get their Medicaid checks and their social security checks, and then things weaken a little bit further. And what the Democrats want is that everyone goes, it's their fault, the Republicans. And as soon as they say, it's their fault, then the Democrats say, oh, we have a solution. And then the hope is that they come up with this solution, irrespective of how much disruption it is, because all you want to do is just pin the shit on the Republicans, because then you go in and you do well, and you set yourself up for 2024. That's the thing. Yeah, the debt ceiling has always been an opportunity to pin one side against the other and have an acute moment of focus where everybody gets to yell and scream about what they believe to be right and go after their constituents and then maybe get some other bills in within that approval process, right? The, the bargaining the omnibus. shifts around. It's just whenever yes. you yeah, have yeah, to yeah, get yeah, something yeah. done, Load a the lot of deals car. get done. And yeah. so the, yeah, the, the problem, problem is, is miscalculation. The problem Rod. is, is the debt ceiling going to be? Probably not. 
But is there going to be an issue? Are we going to have a last minute event? Are some people going to be disrupted in terms of payments for I, sure? I think and- they'll probably, I think they'll pull one of these other tricks. Question is just how the market takes to it. And I think that's the issue. As I said, there is a question mark over is the new debt, if the step you've taken to avoid the debt ceiling is then subsequently ruled by the Supreme Court as illegal, is the debt that you've issued to break that rule valid? Again, yeah, just that's, more uncertainty. They're, they're not going to go, they're not going to go that direction. There's just no way. I would hope not, mate. Adam, this is, remember, you were dealing with a shower of individuals, right? They are just the world's worst. To draw an analogy with geopolitics, the big concern that people talk about now with US and China is less about the risk of both of them wanting to escalate, but rather a risk of miscalculation, of posturing, which kind of is the same, it's what caused World War One, right? Everybody said Germany and England are too integrated in an economy, they'll never go to war. They went to war because there was a miscalculation, guns and bargains, all that stuff. You have the same situation now over Taiwan. In the same way, you could have this Congress, now you have a very weak leader in the Republicans that, that he barely was, how many votes, 12, 14 votes to, to, to get this guy as a leader of the Republicans. And you have the Democrats fumbling into an attempt at re-election. They could miscalculate, right? I think this is what the conversation, right? The noise has been raising in this issue because of this risk of miscalculation, because there's more political polarization. And, I think and- it's a very dangerous time, right? I struggle to see capitalists for improvement. That's when I look at this economy and say, can we avoid a recession? As I said, I had a long conversation with a buddy of mine. And it's how do these regional banks get out of their hole? How do they continue to, how do they raise capital to continue to expand lending? And the answer is, it's pretty much impossible for them to do that. Okay, but what about all the, there's a huge amount of cash on the corporate balance sheets. You've still got $700 billion in excess, excess savings and deposit institutions from all the COVID handouts. I think this has been underappreciated by a lot of conventional economists over the last year is just how resilient the consumer is because their bank accounts are many thousands of dollars larger than they have ever been in for 80% of the population. And except for the bottom one or two deciles by income, the rest of the rest of Americans are still profoundly well cashed up. And at the same time, you made a really good point about just via the Kalecki equation, we know that whatever the excess this savings were from the COVID handouts that no longer reside on consumer balance sheets now resides on corporate balance sheets. So the other side of this is that the cor- the corporate sector could unleash a major investment boom. Like they're sitting on a huge amount of cash. They extended the duration of their debt. They took the Fed seriously in early 20, in, in late 2021, early 2022. They issued a huge amount of debt. They got a huge amount of cash on the balance sheet and they've accumulated all the next. So what doesn't make a difference on on the fact that we eventually have a recession, but I I think we have to acknowledge the potential that it pushes out the recession and causes potentially a major miscalibration by decision makers. Right. And so it causes them to have higher rates for or push either push rates higher or hold them higher for too long, et cetera. 
and that tilts the banking system or some other sector into a major crisis. Like so no, real estate. I, I, the reason why I was reaching it is, so I was at a conference and Stephanie Pomboy was there and I was reaching out. She had a very interesting table and I'll just read it to you. So there's the total amount of cash on the S&P balance sheet, okay, is basically $2.2 trillion, okay? The top 10 is $850 billion. The top 25 is 1.1. So half of all of that cash, to your point, is on the balance sheet, but it's in 25 companies. And I'm sorry, in aggregate, that isn't enough. That isn't enough. This was this is something also that Jeff Curry brought up, and it was a hard one to get your head around, right? It's not the wealthy who create inflation, it's the poor. Right. Because the poor decide how many units of production are purchased. So Jeff Bezos can have 500 pairs of shoes. Makes no difference, right? If you gave Africa two pairs of shoes each, it's a hell of a lot more. And that probably, that's really what counts. And so this is the point, right? You can have lots of money on the balance sheets of these very big companies and they can get bigger and they can have a bigger market share and they can have a bigger share of GDP, but they can't offset what all these other companies do. And when I look at my forward models for what CapEx is doing, it's going down. It is going profoundly negative, just like the inventory cycle. And I and the reason for that is in part this tightening of credit. And we shouldn't forget that in 2000, right, we didn't technically have, we did have a technical recession because it was two quarters but year over year, GDP never went negative. And that was just on the back of an inventory cycle and a CapEx cycle. And this time, I think we've got an inventory cycle, CapEx cycle, rising unemployment, a slowdown in housing production, and back then housing except was accelerated. Okay. So I just don't see, and, and, and a bank and a credit crunch. I don't see how we avoid irrespective of what frigging Google does with their cash. So, but that's not, the end game might be that. The question is how long the wick is versus what the Fed is looking backwards and saying, historically, right. it takes us 18 months to kill the labor market. It takes us yeah, to the yeah. growth market. It's really about the timing of things. And, fuck and I totally concur with that. And I think it's, look, I put on, we put on steepeners. So we were looking at bets where front rate drop and the back end stays where it is. So it, to bet on a recession, essentially in the bond market, a few months back. And we put on five years against 30 years. And the reason we looked five years is I was concerned about a Fed higher for longer. So I didn't want to be too close to bet betting on the front end of the bond market, rates coming down. That's moved quite a long way. It's very difficult for a risk. If you're in the trade grade, you just run it. I think it's got quite a long way to go. It's hard trade to put on now. You're absolutely right, Rodrigo. At this point, you're making a bet on when it happens. And to my mind, that's really either a bet on a banking crisis accelerating or negative employment data, I would say would be the other variable. Now, if I go back to 1966, and the banking crisis back then, 66, 67, and I wrote that on the anatomy of a banking crisis and so look at that period there. Why? Because 
it was just a single event. It was a banking crisis. It gives you an indicator of, without other things going on, how that could affect. And the Fed wrote a letter. The banks, similar thing, banks are getting squeezed on both sides. They had long duration assets and they had a runoff in posits. They're getting squeezed from both sides. And they started to sell their assets. They were muni bonds at the time, municipal bonds. And the Fed didn't like that because it was starting to put pressure on the long end curve. And they wanted to. So they wrote them a letter on the 1st of September, 1966, saying, hold on. We want you, because inflation is rising, to start cutting back lending to the real economy. What we don't want you to do is sell the assets on your balance sheet. And here is the deposit the deposit window you can go and borrow from that. A bit like the bank term deposit facility that we have presently, right? That was in the 1st of September. One month, 22 days later, the Fed pivots. And a month after that, they start cutting. And they cut by 300 basis points in five months. And McChesney Martin wrote a letter three years later saying that was the worst move that he could have made. And we've, you but know, shit, we've learned lessons but, from that. Right? The problem is that the credit crunch was real, right? It, remember, this was an economy that was growing very rapidly because we we're doing guns and butter, right? And had underlying fiscal stimulus in the economy, a bit like we still have underlying fiscal stimulus in this economy still, right? And But industrial production dropped 10%. GDP dropped 6 Non-farm payroll went from plus 400,000 to minus 60. And housing activity dropped 50% all within a year. Now, I agree, retrospectively, it was a big mistake. But the point is, these things that forced the Fed's hands. Okay? So that's option one. Okay, it's possible is the possible is the point. So you could get rapid pivot. Second, it would have to be employment. And when I look at my credit models, tell me that in the next, I've stuck my neck on the line a little bit, and I've said the June report that you get in July, we will have a negative non-farm payroll, right? and I think. From there, the numbers will continue to rate. Because as I said, once employment turns, it turns pretty rapidly. Now, initially, the Fed's going to go like this, but still. The peekaboo Fed? Yeah. It's like they hear no evil, see no evil. And, you know, they're going to just try and ignore it because this is what they've been waiting for. This is what hockey's so understand. They're not your friend. They yeah. want you to stumble. They want you to lose your job. I'm sorry. That's how they address inflation. But what does yesterday so happen that do they then, were aligned in we, the last we, 10 years? It wasn't that course. they were always your friend. You just happened to be useful. Your interests happen to be aligned with theirs. And now, yeah. they're, and now they're doing their job and you don't like it. They're and doing their and job. you have not learned your lesson yet. Right. So, so Julian, Julian, I just want, what does this do? I just want to get his take on yesterday's on payroll 
numbers because that surprised to the upside quite a bit. So it, it showed size of still accelerating to some degree. I think unemployment went down. To yeah, I saw a chart. I saw a chart of the variation versus expectations going back to 2003. And it's like, yeah, this one, yeah, right. yeah. revisions, Plus, revisions coming down the pike potentially. Yeah. Well, give it with one hand, take it to the other, right? We took 149,000 away. That's right. The previous number had one of the things. Yeah. And that actually is important because actually what it did to a lot of my work is it reinforced the loss of momentum. So you've, you're rolling. Fair enough. Yeah. That kind of, and that's creation of jobs is an old part of payoffs and creation of jobs. And so you're losing that kind of momentum on the valley floor, right? So the next thing you start is unemployment starts to rise. Now, the strange one was the rise in unemployment. Oh, sorry, the drop in unemployment to 3.4. But you're getting, even with there, you're getting to this point where you're three four, three six, three four, three six, three four, three six, and so you're no longer dropping materially. You seem to be losing some momentum. And I think some of these look, it's the time of the year when it's spring again. You should be hiring. But look, I'll say, if I'm wrong, this labour market isn't losing momentum. And the biggest risk to everything now is the bond market just reprices because it's just bloody wrong. Absolutely. Yes. You know, agreed. But hourly earnings were, for me, the biggest light bulb, right? Hourly earnings were up 0.5% month over month. Sticky. Wages are sticky, right? Yeah. Most of our models on wages are showing that we hit the absolute higher, like 6%, but they're sticky. And this, this goes to this point that the Fed has to see. This is why he can't give way, right? He's going to, if you're betting on the Fed resolve dropping, something material has to happen. I'm not saying it's a bad bet because there are actually some interesting market bets that you could put on, but you, you want something really nasty to happen. You want unemployment to, non-fund payroll to drop materially. You want this banking crisis to get worse materially. Otherwise, and that's a heart attack type of event. Otherwise, you're, and that's you've stabbed it and the patient died, right? Otherwise, you're just grinding this thing out in agony. And they cannot let you out of pain. They're going to keep you in pain. They're going to keep gently twisting that knife and and i look as i said i look at this regional banking situation in that situation and i just okay we maybe delay it three months a quarter i don't want to put too much weight on a single day but were you not not for payroll for god's sake yeah but it's persisted the whole it's this has been the strangest day to me because it's signaled that we have um certainly a much more resilient uh, earnings picture, right? That earnings are running considerably hotter than expectations. Hourly earnings, like unemployment, or employment earnings, rather, are running significantly hotter than expectations. That has been the single most important metric for the Fed. Bonds got the message, sold off aggressively, Equities and commodities had massive rallies. Oil up 4%, grains up 4%. 
Copper reversing higher. Growth is good for those real commodities as opposed to precious metals. That's that's the tough one. But the reflexivity is what I don't get because this means the Fed is going to have to be even more aggressive. So growth expectations should be be even lower. Yeah, but that's not how the I think what's happening is I think what's happening is like that anymore, right? They just good employment numbers, strong growth by cyclical assets, right? Sell bonds, buy copper. It's all knee jerk. There's no strategy. No, I think the market is hearing Powell say, we're not going any higher. They're seeing a hotter economic print and there's, and they're pricing that the Fed is going to let inflation run hotter than every, than they've been talking about before, which is going to be bad for bonds. Great for stocks and commodities and real estate. Two outcomes. There's two outcomes. Okay. First one, he's going to prove that what we always know, they're bloody liars, right? I'm going to say there is reliable. No, I'm not going to say that because that's really rude. I say it to some of my clients, but teenage boys, girlfriends, that kind of thing, analogy, right? They're about as reliable as that. Okay. They tell you this is the problem, right? This is always the problem at the lows on rates. We're not raising rates. We're not raising rates. We're not raising... Jesus, did you see that? And the bond market's pushed out duration. Then So that's option number one, okay? That they'll lie and they'll just hike again. And in in the policy framework, I suggested that's what... That's the bet you should take, okay? Yeah. Option number two is they lose control of the long end of the bubble market. And I look at TLT, and technically TLT, if it drops much further than here, bond yields are going higher again. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. And that would be... Stocks are not getting that at all. Or if they are, they're saying, yeah, and the Fed doesn't care. They're going to let it run hot. They're going to let the economy well, run. Then ultimately, also dollar guys, and then I think we're in a world of pain. It's okay, so guys, we're running into an hour and a half now. I do want to take the last five minutes, Julian, to ask you. We, we talked to a lot of macro commentators, and what we find is that they have different models in terms of what are you trying to time for, right? What is your what are you trying to predict? Is it a two week thing, a three month thing, a year out thing? Is it a five year? model that you offer. So why don't you walk us through kind of your services and who's, what type of traders are looking for your services? How quickly are they in and out? Totally valid. So I'm not a day trader, right? I am definitively not a trade trader. I am a, we are a kind of three to six month, sometimes it's longer, one month to three months to maybe six months. Sometimes it's longer. Like we started selling, betting on higher interest rates in November of 2021 and started that's we did that all year we bet on lower HYG in December of 2022 we bet on that sorry in 2021 we bet on that all year right it's all those sorts of things sometimes you get lucky but generally we are more the sort of three to six months I I say one month because frequently you think it's going to take six months it happens in one month and these days you think it's going to take Six months. I was listening to Druckermiller and he was saying, I always think about something and I put a little bit on because if I've thought about it, someone else is thinking about it and the odds are 
before I get the chance to really think about it, it's already so you get those sorts of situations. So our client base is essentially hedge funds, very large proportion of large number of hedge funds, big mutual funds, family offices, and some individual traders. And so it's as I said, I everything that we do, Jens, is designed to make money for our clients. I don't care what inflation is going to be ultimately unless there's a trade, right? right? Sure, I can get bragging rights. Someone said to me, I was talking to a journalist, he goes, you're not an economist, right? And I went, no. <laughs> and with no. pride. You took it with pride, actually. That you- I did. I knew I wore that one with pride. And because I'm not saying they don't have a role. They do. Quite sure what it is, but they have a role. But I'm interested in P&L. And that is singularly all I care about. It's trying to make my clients money. So how many bets losing it in a if I'm talking to retail investors? Right. How many bets would you say you have on average that are orthogonal? Or is it just you have a big kind of thesis and you're placing that thesis bet with four or five different instruments? Yeah. Occasionally you do find out you've got too much concentration risk. So you put on four different trades and they turn out to be the same trade because the correlations all go to one. That's never great. I would say generally we have between two and six, two and four trades on at any one time. We run a an alpha capture platform for a big hedge fund. And that's, if I look at that's what we've got on. Amazing. Julian, always entertaining, very insightful. Yeah. Loved having like you back. Appreciate you coming. We could yeah. probably do Thanks this for another hour and a half at least. I have so many questions and there's so many threads to pull on from this conversation, but it's just another good excuse to have you on again soon. Yeah. And don't forget, Vail, when, when is it again? September? So 26th to the 29th. It's, it literally does look like Richard's out of Richard's. So it's peak fall. It is the most beautiful time of the year to go there. And what's the format going to be? So the format's going to be, look, we're going into 2024. It's a big year right? It's a big election year. There's going to be a lot on the line. The geopolitics, I think, are getting increasingly turned. So we're going to talk, on day one, we're going to talk about politics, macro, where we think the economy is, a little bit of geopol, but just give you people a framework of where our heads are. And we're inviting, there's lots of conferences you go where there's a lot of like high profile people, but I've found in 30 plus years of doing this, I don't really rely on high profile people. I have a cadre of people that I truly have relied on for smart decisions and smart information. And those are the people that I'm inviting. I'm inviting people I think who are the best at giving me a read on what the Fed is going to do, the best who's going to give me a read on what's going on in DC, the best people I can trust on what's going on in China. And the people I think you've got the best track record of calling the economy. And then on the second day, we're going to set it up uh, with a bunch of people who know how to make money out of those views. Now, there'll be institutional guys, so PMs that I really have a lot of respect for, who manage large amounts of money. But also, I'm going to invite a couple of wealth managers because the vast majority of retail guys aren't punting euro dollars or 
bonds, right? They want to know how to position their wealth so that they don't lose money in what I think all of us in this call think is going to be a different decade from the last decade. And I've got a couple of guys that I really respect who don't just stand the, follow the standard model of accumulating assets, telling you can't time the market, telling you that you just need to be in this bucket and in this bucket and trust to God, right, that really, I think, understand what's coming and make decisions around portfolio allocation. And I think, I hope that's going to be unique. Amazing. Yeah, it looks to be yeah, that's very great. good. So everybody, mm -hmm. I'm sure you're going to be putting information out on your yeah, Twitter Twitter feed. We're just going to launch a website. If you keep checking it, the MI2 Partners website, it'll be up. Fantastic. Julian, Amazing. thank you so much. Pleasure. Enjoy your weekend. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investorsall. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for resolve-masterclass.